Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome. Welcome to Mercy House. My name's Robert, and I'm the lead pastor. Glad you're here. Hopefully, you're picking the Bibles up off the floor there, opening up to Judges chapter 6, uh, or opening that up on your phone. The main text, I usually don't put on the screen behind me, because I'm trying to make you look it up in the Bible, get used to finding things in the Bible. Not everybody's familiar with the Bible, and uh, so it gives you a chance to kind of figure out where things are. So Judges uh, chapter 6. What we've found out so far is that the people of God are finding themselves in this continuing cycle. We've been calling it the Judges cycle. And so they are disobeying God primarily by worshiping other gods. And then they end up being disciplined by God, which results in them experiencing great distress, which is the plan by God. And they, in that distress, cry out for a a deliverer. And then God sends that deliverer and gives them deliverance. And then they're they're on board. As long as that that judge is, uh, is still alive, they're on board. And the judge dies, and then they go back to disobedience and down into the cycle they go again. And so between chapter 1 and 5, we're already through this cycle like four times. And then we get to chapter 6, and here it is again. Judges 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So here we are again. And it's going to feel like, in some ways, like this is just the same sermon every week, and, and, and in some ways it is, um, but it actually, each time we go around the cycle, we drill down deeper into these four parts of the cycle. So we learn more about the nature of the disobedience. We learn more about the nature of the distress they find themselves in, the discipline of God and the deliverance that He gives. So that's basically going to be the four points. We're going to look at each of the parts of the cycle and drill down a little deeper into uh, those four parts of disobedience, discipline, distress, and deliverance. So let's look into the deeper understanding of their disobedience. It says that, the God, that God's people did what was evil. Now, what's, what's evil, right? We'd say, well, that's things that are wrong, that, that, they, that they shouldn't be doing. But then the question next is, is well, why are certain things evil. And I think in our current cultural moment, the answer to that is, well, because the majority of people at this current time think things are, certain things are evil. That's why they're evil. We all kind of take a vote on what's evil and what's not evil, and collectively we decide what's evil. Uh, for instance, recycling. Who thinks it's evil to throw away a plastic bottle? Anybody? Could be. Yep. One, okay, Brian Chu is back there. Um, it doesn't seem to be evil when I'm with my 80-year-old father-in-law in Texas, right? Like, he does not recycle. Everything's thrown away. And it bothers me, right? I, I'm like, I, I have this, you know, plastic bottle, and there's no opportunity for recycling. And I, but I wasn't always that way, right? In 1999, when I got here... We threw everything away because this is what we did in our, the cultural context that we were from. And one day I'm gathering up all of our trash, and I mean, we're like an ecological disaster, right? We got several bags of trash from this one little family, and I'm loading up the back of my truck to take it down to the dumpster. And our, our neighbor, Steve, the kids would call him Mr. Steve, uh, 
is in his garage. And so I thought, I'm going to be a good neighbor. I'm new in town. You know, I'm going to try to you know, be a nice guy. And so I'm like, hey, Steve, uh, would you like me to take your trash? And he looks over at me and he just snarls. And I'm, and I'm like, what is going on here? Then I look in the garage and I see he's sorting out his recyclables at that very moment. And this is back when you had to look at the number on the bottom and go, okay, that's a number two recyclable. Oh, that's a number one. And he was sorting it out to prepare it to take it to the, the transfer station. It's not called a dump, okay? It's a transfer station. And you take it there to make sure. And this guy was like zero footprint, right? And so it was there that I started to think, okay, now this is like a big deal, like, like this recycling thing. And, and it wasn't long before we had taken that into our own ethical framework, that it is right to recycle, it is wrong to not recycle. Or, or another example, 1950s America. In 1950s America, uh, getting a divorce is wrong. Whether you're Christian or non-Christian, like this, the, the, the society would, t- would say it's wrong, right? And, but racism, at least among white people, not so wrong. Not so wrong, right? Now, in 2018 in America, divorce, eh, not really considered wrong. Unfortunate, yes, less than ideal, maybe inevitable in some cases, but definitely divorce is in the no-judgment zone. But racism is wrong, right? As it should be. But why? Why, why were these things the way they were in 1950 and now they're something else? In 2018, why is something wrong? Well, the Scripture teaches us that something is wrong because right and wrong are rooted in the person of God. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It wasn't just evil like some list that society had created. This was evil in the sight of of the Lord. This had been rooted in the person of God. It was not based merely on human preferences. And so what this also means is if we do evil, we're not just breaking the list of rules. We're actually rejecting relationship with God, the God from which good and evil come from. So taking care of the earth, staying married until death, respecting all colors and cultures, this comes from God. This is not just something the society is, is into this particular century, right? These, these things are rooted in the person of God. Now, you might say, well, but there does seem to be some kind of an agreement between people that Christians or not Christians regarding what is right and what is wrong. And that's true. And it's, it's, I'd say because they have a moral intuition given to them by God, whether they know God or not, whether they believe in God or not. They have a moral intuition, a sense. Now, it's not perfect. Just like everything else on the planet, it's been infected by sin, and it, it's not its perfect, God-glorifying, good-for-people kind of thing that it was intended. But there's still this remnant of moral intuition that is in every human being because they are created by God. They are God's image-bearer. You hear the Apostle Paul talk this way in Romans 2.15. It says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 
Here he's describing the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, those who didn't have the Bible, they didn't have the, the law. And he says, even they, at least on some level, have a sense of what is right and wrong. And that comes from God, whether they acknowledge it or not. So again, bottom line, what's considered good or evil, it originates in the person of God. So if we, we can't say that we are worshipers of the one true God and do evil. That's inconsistent, right? And this is what Israel was doing. They're saying, yeah, 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 we worship. We worship our God, we, absolutely. But we also do these very evil things, and we worship additional gods, and that's, that's not okay, right? It gives us a little sense, of, a, a deeper sense of the nature of their disobedience. Jesus talked this way, Matthew 7. He says, "This not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see that? He's saying, you know what, verbal profession, that, that you are a Christian or you've made me Lord, that, that doesn't get you in the door, right? He says, what does is following my will, actually living as if I am your Lord. But then he goes on, he says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like, no, wait a minute, Jesus, you just said if we did the right thing, then we get into heaven. He's like, no, you actually have to also know me, right? And so which is it, Jesus? Is is it that we we do the right thing or or we know you by faith? Which is it? And what he's saying is these things are inseparable, that those who genuinely love, worship, know God, it will result in good behavior. It will result in righteous, holy living. They are not the same thing, but they are inseparable. And so Israel, are not, they're not merely breaking some rules. They're rejecting the good God who gave them those good rules for their human flourishing out of a relational commitment to them, to love them well. So that's the same is true of us, right? We, we try to look at our disobedience and say, we're just merely breaking a few rules. We're fudging on a few rules. I mean, think, about, think about the things that you fudge on, right? You fudge on maybe your financial integrity, or the, you fudge on passivity in your relationships with your spouse or your kids, or maybe you, you overwork, or you're lazy, or you binge on media. It's that, it's that thing that you say, I know I shouldn't, but fill in the blank, right? And, and you, again, we chalk it up to, well, I'm breaking a few rules. No, 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 no. There's a sin under the sin, and the sin under the sin is we're not worshiping God rightly in those moments. And the result is that we are doing evil. So what does God do with His people who are rejecting Him and doing evil? He disciplines them. He disciplines them. The the last part of that verse I just read, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. He's disciplining them. And the way He's disciplining them is He's just basically taking off the force field and letting the consequences of their behavior go unrestrained. What, what, he, what they don't realize is that the, the good that they had been experiencing was by the grace of God. 
What they didn't know is that that whole time, God was restraining the Midianites. He was restraining the Canaanites, restraining the Philistines. He, he, he was protecting them. He was providing for them. He was, and they had no clue. They thought that they were providing for themselves. They were protecting themselves. And so instead of acknowledging God as the one true God, they, they gave all credit to themselves. And so God, in His mercy, this is really mercy, right? Disciplines them by taking off the force field and letting them experience what it's like to be apart from God. You see this all throughout Scripture. See, see God doing this in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Here's another place in the, New, in the Old Testament, Psalm 81. It says, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. He's giving them over, in that case, not to, to outward Midianites, but inward stubbornness of heart, which is really what he's doing in Judges as well. He's giving them over to the stubbornness of their hearts, their false worship of their hearts. You see this in the New Testament as well. Romans 1 Paul says this, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. Amen. You see what Paul's doing there? He's, he's, he's saying this, this wrong behavior is actually coming from wrong relationship. With God, they're lusting in their hearts, which is leading to dishonorable use of bodies. They're they're participating in false worship, which is actually leading them to serve the creature instead of Creator. And so again, God doesn't have to just He didn't have to smite His people in some kind of direct way. All He had to do was pull back the restraining grace that He had placed on them as His people. Now. Our tendency, just like the Israelites, when things are going poorly, is to say, God, it's your fault. Why are you allowing this to happen? And when things are going good, we say, I did this. It's me. And we take credit for it. And Israel finds themselves in much, much the same place. And so by design... God will bring us to a place of distress. And it is. It's by design and it's by His mercy. And this is what He does for Israel. He brings them to a place of distress. So let's look at the nature of their distress. Verse 2, the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of, the Midian, because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, the caves, the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. As far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. So this gives us a little insight into their misery, their, their distress. I'm calling this Midianite misery, right? And so what's happening? Well, what's happening is they're hiding and they're hungry. They're hiding and they're hungry, right? They're hiding in caves because they're afraid. But it's hard to grow food in caves. 
but you can grow mushrooms. But other than that, you can't really grow much in a cave. So you got to come out when you get hungry enough, and they would attempt to grow food. But then once it came harvest season, the Midianites showed up and took it away. They plundered them. And then they ran back into their caves because they were scared. But then they got hungry again because you can't grow food in caves, so they came back out. And then when they grew the food, the Midianites showed up and took their food. And then they went back in the caves, right? Seven times this went through. This cycle of, of hiding and hungry, hiding and hungry. We've been like this since the, the fall in the garden, right? This, this, this is the, the, the plight of human beings trying to live life apart from God. The first thing that happens when Adam and Eve sin, they, they start hiding. They start trying to cover themselves in their shame. They, they hear God in the garden. They've run into the bushes. They're hiding, and, and, and out of that, we then go to look for what, what's going to satiate the hunger of our souls. And it never works. It never meets those desires, that hunger. We know this. We know this cycle, right? We, we know what it's like to be in hiding, to be filled with anxiety or depression and, and not wanting to come out, but then reaching a place where, where we, we've got to go out to meet that hunger. And so we, we push out and we try to meet that hunger in places that, that don't actually satisfy the hunger. Then we feel fear and shame about what we did or what we experienced, and then we go back into hiding. But then we can't stay in hiding forever. We've got to go out and try to satiate the hunger. So we go back out, and we, we, we do something else. And backwards and, and, and forwards we go in this cycle. Incoming freshmen at UCLA were asked this question, simple question, uh, over, over the last few decades. In 1985, they were asked this question, uh, have you felt overwhelmed by all that you have to do? And 18% said yes. It's interesting to watch the numbers go up. 2010, 29% said yes, I feel overwhelmed. And by 2017, 41% said yes, I feel overwhelmed. They haven't even got to their first college class yet, and they feel overwhelmed, right? This overwhelming sense of anxiety, of fear, of wanting to just crawl down in a hole, right, and hide. Yet, we, 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 gotta, we come out of that, right, looking for something to satiate the hunger. Oftentimes, this is expressed in, in drinking, hooking up, binging on media. These, these things, we're, we're just trying to satiate the hunger that we have. Or if, if we're working people, it could be drinking, it could be hooking up, that kind of thing, or, or vegging in front of screens, or obsessing over fitness, or living for hobbies and travel, or meeting that special someone, or meeting that second special someone after a divorce. Or there's always this something else to, to try to feed the hungry soul, but it never satisfies. It never satisfies. It reminds me of Snickers. Right? You've seen this. Snickers satisfies. Really? Right? So you get 7% of your daily protein from a Snickers, but you get 25% of the daily sugar that you need and 25% of your saturated fat, right? There was one website that I was, I was reading about Snickers, and uh, they said, this is a less than ideal food. I'm like, yeah, that's a, that is a... That's a, an understatement. But the way it's pitched, right, is like, whoa, this is going to satisfy you. I feel like it's similar to, to the cultural messages that we receive every day. The, the culture knows we're hungry, right? This is, this is what drives advertising, is they know we're hungry. They know we want something to satisfy us, and we're willing to lay down our money to attempt to satisfy 
ourselves, but nothing's going to satisfy. Nothing's going to satisfy except the life-giving God. Right? And so Israel finds themselves in this place where they were absolutely miserable, and they're in exactly the right place to experience life. Right? They don't know it in that moment, but they, they are. Right? Look, at, look at verse 6. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Right? Oh, that sounds horrible. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. This is the only way out of the hiding and hungry cycle. It's crying out to God. Help! And it took seven years of Midianite misery for Israel to finally cry out, Help! We don't want to live in this anymore. We don't want to hide in caves anymore. We don't want to try to eke this out apart from you, the one true God. And they cried out for help. And again, they, they were stubborn about it, as are we, thinking, oh, no, we will satiate this hunger. Snickers will satisfy. I'm just sure of it. Just one more. But it, but it never does. Right? And when we do cry out for help, he answers. He answers. He answers Israel. Now, he answers in a way that we might not predict, a way that we might not like at first. But look at the way that he helps. Look at the way that he delivers. Here's how he answers. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. And from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you, I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And then the prophet just drops the mic. That's the end of the sermon. That's the end of the sermon. Now the prophet speaks the words of God. Here, Israel is is finally admitting their need. They finally go vertical. They're finally crying out for help. And the prophet shows up, and his message is not, Oh, you poor Israelites. It's not that at all. It's, okay, God brought you out of Egypt, the most powerful military force on the planet. He then took on the Canaanites, and he pushed them out of of the promised land. He then established you in this promised land. He then established you to be the the people who were to worship the one true God and show the rest of the planet who the one true God is. And you disobeyed. He doesn't say, poor Israelite. He's clarifying what's going on. Because we'll see in a minute, they think it's God's fault. They're saying, it's God's fault. And he's saying, no, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. This is actually discipline that you're experiencing that has brought you to a place of distress and and to a place of willingness to to cry out for help. That they've been living life apart from God, and these have been the consequences of that. And if we're honest, we're much like Israel, right? We want the good life without the good God. Oh, we pray to God, but we pray occasional prayers where we shoot these prayers up asking for the perfect life, right? Not so much that we want to be in relationship with God. We want to worship God. We want to know the one true God. We, we want the good stuff without 
the one who gives the good stuff. And so God, when He sends the rescue, He starts with bad news. And, and, and this, is his, this is His way, okay? He confronts us with reality. And we want this from, like, our doctors. We want that, right? Hey, if, if I have a disease, tell me. I want to know. And what's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? If my car's broken, I want my mechanic to, to be clear with me. What is wrong? What's it going to cost to fix it? Right? I, I want my teacher to be honest with me. If, if, if this problem is going to be on the test, I want to know how to do this problem. I don't care how hard it is because I want to make a good grade on the test. But, but do we want that with God? Oftentimes, no. What we want from God is for Him to be kind of a therapist. Like, don't tell me that I'm doing anything wrong. Don't confront me about my heart and my life. Just comfort me. Be there for me. Now, he, he does comfort, and He is there, right? But He also confronts. He, he also gives us truth. When, when we, we in a, I was in this room at UMass talking to a student, and uh, there, there was an a, a employee of UMass setting up some tables, and was, he was eavesdropping. I knew he was eavesdropping. I was like, fine, he can hear me talk about Jesus with a student. And, and so he, he, he finally comes over, and he's like, this is great. I love it that you guys are talking about God and, and uh, reading the Bible. And, 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 and then he says, uh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And he literally like, starts two steps back. And it's his way of letting, letting me know, don't, don't put any religion on me. Don't put any expectations on me. Like, I like thinking about that there's a God up there and that he's with me and that he's loving me and comforting me. But he, he would never tell me I'm doing something wrong. Really? God. Really? The God of heaven who created the universe? I, it, it seems possible that he might have a difference of opinion than mine, Right? And so this, this is part of the help that God sends, is a loving confrontation to confront us about our sin. He's not our therapist, right? Because what's true is that we've been trying to live life apart from God. It's as if we've been trying to run and sing and dance without oxygen. How, how can you do that? You can't do that without oxygen. You, you, you can't live this life the way it was intended without a right relationship with God, without being a true worshiper of the one true God. Now, it's not the only thing that he does in sending help. Uh, verse 11, we see the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, and w- which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So not only does God send this prophet with this confrontation, he's also raising up a deliverer. And his name's Gideon. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at Gideon's uh, story. Uh, Gideon's hiding and hungry. He's trying to, to thresh wheat in a wine press. 
Now, the way you would thresh wheat is that you would take the wheat and the chaff, so that's like the stems and leaves, stuff that, stuff that you want to separate. You would throw it into the air, and the wind would blow through, and it would blow away the lighter weight chaff, and the heavier wheat would fall back to the ground, and then you would have just the pure wheat left. Except he's doing this in a wine press. There is no wind in a wine press. <laughs> but he's doing this because in the wine press because he's afraid. He's afraid of the Midianites. And so he's hiding in there. And he's also hungry, right? He's just trying to eke out some kind of harvest where he could get some kind of food before the Midianites come and take the harvest away. And so this is the first invitation by God to Gideon to, to begin to live a life that is actually in relationship with God. And it's interesting how, how he does this. He, he calls him a mighty man of valor. Gideon is no mighty man of valor, not at this point in his story. He's hiding in a wine press trying to thresh wheat. Right? So what is he saying? Well, he's saying, mighty man of valor, God is with you. You are not alone. You may feel like you're alone, and, and you look like you're alone. You're, you're hiding in this wine press so afraid and so hungry. But God has been with you the whole time, and he invites him to repent from that life that's apart from God, to, to live in the presence of God. Now, what, what does Gideon say, right? Does he just jump right on that and go, oh, okay, great, I'm going to live for God. No. Verse 13, Gideon says to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us given us into the hand of Midian. Gives you some insight into Gideon's self-talk. I'm pretty sure this is Israel's self-talk, right? When he's told, the Lord's with you. Like, no, he's not. No, he's not. I've heard these stories from the glory days of how God powerfully brought us out of Egypt. I haven't seen any of that. I haven't seen any of that power. I mean, if the Lord is with us, then how can we be experiencing this hiding and hungry existence that we're in? And so again, what's he doing? He's, he's going through some hard times and he's blaming it on God. This is your fault, God. As opposed to thinking, maybe God's trying to get my attention. Maybe God's at work in the midst of these very hard times. And so it, it, it's this invite to step out of that perspective and out of that life that's lived apart from God and to live in the presence of God. It gives us a deeper understanding of the bad news, and the good news of the deliverance of God. Because the bad news, right, is that we are sinners. We are separated from God. That, that without deliverance, we cannot be reconciled with God. That our worst fate is that we are separated from the presence of God because of sin. And that separation is both now and the life to come. We call that hell. But the good news is that Christ has come to deliver us, the true and better deliverer. And He's come to, to die in our place, the idol worshipers that we are, so that we can be forgiven and we can be brought back into relationship with the life-giving God. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. We're reminded of the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night of his, before His death, where He takes bread, He breaks it, He gives it, to his disciples, he says, take, eat. This is 
my body given for you. Don't you think it's so interesting that, that Jesus would use this bread and food as a symbol for the gospel? Right? He, he knows, every human being understands hunger, understands what it's like to eat food and have that hunger satisfied. Right? So this is part of, of what we're reenacting, that, that moment where we knew that we were absolutely hopeless and we cried out for help. And He gave us Himself right? because He knew it was, it was His Self that would actually satisfy the hunger that we have. In the same way, He took the cup, and after He had blessed it, He gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's letting us know that it cost Him a high price in order to bring us back into relationship with Him on the cross. One of the the, the things that Jesus says as He experiences the sin of humanity coming into Him, He says to, to His Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And so He's experiencing the forsaking of the Father because of the sin of human beings so that we don't have to. And no matter what, what you're feeling today, whether it's been a hard week or you've been in, in those hiding, hungry places, the Lord is with you, and He's proven it at the cross. In the Old Testament, they keep going back to the, to, to the Exodus right? in Egypt. They say, no, look, 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 look back, look at the Exodus. Well, now we look back at the cross, and we go, no matter how I feel emotionally, I can look back at the cross and say, He's with me. Right? And for some of you, you've, you've never received that. Right? You've never received this forgiveness and this new life that Christ gives you. And so I want to encourage you to do that this morning to acknowledge that you believe both the bad news and the good news, that you believe the bad news, that you're a sinner and that you're separated from God, but the good news that Christ has died in your place so you could be forgiven of sin and brought back into relationship with a life-giving God. And that relationship is now and in the life to come. Those of you that, that are Christ's followers, and you know what I'm talking about. You know when, when you came to that place where you were at the end of yourself and you cried out, hey! And Christ met you in that, and He satisfied you in that. You also know that our default oftentimes is to go back into hiding and hungry cycles. And so it's partly why we need this. We need to, to hear the Word of God. We need to, to sing the Word of God. We need to see it in the bread and the cup to be reminded. what This is what satisfies us. This is what's going to satisfy our deepest need of our hearts. So satisfying. It's, it's good enough for this life, and it's good for an eternity. Talk about satisfaction. But we need to be reminded, because we so easily get derailed and, and go back into those hungry hiding places. And so let's let, let the Lord, by His grace, giving us bad news, good news, bringing us back to a place of satisfaction. Others, you may be skeptical, right? Maybe you came with a friend, you're, you're considering this, you think, eh, I just don't know, I'm not buying it. I want to encourage you to cry out for help too. The best way you know how, just from your heart, to say, God, I don't know if you're real, I don't know if you're true, but cry out to him in your heart this morning. Help! And ask him to show himself to you. I think he loves that prayer. I think he'll meet you in that prayer. So let's pray. God, we do need your help. 
Lord, we so easily can, can, can seek satisfaction in, in places that are so shallow, that, that there's, there's such a sham. And we know it, and sometimes we go back to those same things again and again and again and again, and then we, we just, our, our hunger is just even, increased even more. And so all of us, Lord, we come to you with hungry hearts, needing you this morning, Lord. So as, as we take this bread and, and this cup and we're reminded of these, by these symbols of, of the thing that, that most satisfies our souls, Lord, knowing you and remembering the high cost you paid so that we could know you, God. And so may, may we may drink deeply, eat uh, ravishingly, God, just, just of your uh, mercy and your grace this morning. And for those that have never, never received you by faith, Lord, help them to reach out in their heart of hearts and to ask you to meet them in this place, to forgive them, to transform them, to bring them this life that they've been hungering for, just not knowing where to look. So Lord, would you bless the bread, bless the cup, bless our time together, both with you and with one another. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.